0: 2020 will be the federal government's first real opportunity to put into action the new mandate letters each minister received from the PMO following the October 2019 election. And on the same day Canada formed its next government, the C.D. Howe Institute offered Ottawa its own mandate letters, written by, among others, Don Drummond, the Stoffer Dunning Fellow in Global Public Policy and adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University and the Institute's Director of Public Affairs,
1: Benjamin Dacus. The mandate letters are the, some of the most important documents that are going to come out uh, at the start of any government, where they're really the touchstone document that lay out uh, the centres, uh, the, 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 in this case the Prime Minister's offices, uh, key priorities. And what's interesting with these mandate letters is that for the most part, with some very important exceptions that we'll get into, uh, they are really just uh, the campaign commitments. Uh, whether it's uh, the, the high-level things that we've heard about, in terms of uh, things like the child benefit, but as you get uh, more and more, uh, you drill further and further down, uh, even some of the smaller things. Uh, in this case, they certainly have a lot of uh, overlap with the with the with the campaign that the uh, liberals uh, uh, what what they ran in the in the, in the campaign.
0: And as we look through 2020 and what we can expect in this year, you point out that there will be many challenges, both domestic and global, on the domestic side, not the least of which would be aging demographics and weak productivity growth. But Don, I'd be interested in your take on Ben's concern about global turmoil and the prospect that a global recession could hit at any time, and that would put further stress on public finances.
2: Well, you pick a very good example because the letter to the Minister of Employment in uh, workforce development and inclusion, which who is responsible for economic and social development. The mandate letter just says, basically implement the promises we've already made. It doesn't actually say make the world any better. Now, if you believe the campaign promises and previous things we're gonna make the world better, I guess that's okay, but I'm not sure they do. But to your point, there's nothing in that mandate letter says, make sure we know how the labor force is gonna work out in the face of aging workers make sure we know how it's worked out when we still have these movements to urban areas and it's leaving the rural areas without economic development and high unemployment rates. None of those kinds of things. Uh, Improve the employment insurance, but don't worry about that that's actually taking some labor force away from some of those areas. So it's a bit of a leap of faith that Trust us. We've all kind of worked out these things, and if you just implement our policies, uh, everything will work out. Another example: it just says implement the Canada training benefit. Well, almost all training benefits any government's ever implemented have not worked out very well. So it doesn't say make sure it works well. It just says implement it. So I, I find they're 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 quite transactional and not very ambitious and. Uh, Certainly, as you say, even in the better times, we are going to have a slower economic growth rate and that will have as challenges. It doesn't even address that, never mind the possibility, say, of some kind of disruption from even
1: that slower growth. If you go back to some of the, the mandate letters that uh, that we put out, uh, we started with the fundamental premise that uh, uh, when, we, when we talked to, uh, when we asked some of the top economists and, and some of the City House staff uh, to think about, uh, what the, the, the priorities should be for, for all these various ministries. We wanted to step back and say, all right, this is all about having, a, 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 given the Canadian economy, the ability to generate high and rising living standards. Uh, and part of that is economic competitiveness. And economic competitiveness is going to allow a virtuous circle between uh, the economy uh, and social and, envir- and environmental goals. And so we don't see that uh, in, 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 the, in these letters. When it comes to things like what you just said about uh, trade risks, we need to have policies uh, that are that are going to be there uh, to mitigate that. And uh, we'll, we don't, uh, you know, it's hard to say what's what's in there in, in terms of like, the the broad overarching the you know, over, overarching goal. When it comes to improving
0: productivity in this country, uh, there is a whole laundry list of things that you could do to make that sort of thing happen but you're pointing to the ministers of transport and infrastructure advising that their top priorities ought to be not just reducing ownership limits in some of canada's most traditional industries but eliminating them all together in such things as railways and and airports and seaports i thought the reason why we had those kinds of ownership limits was to ensure that the basic uh, building blocks of our economy remained canadian owned
1: so the the question becomes, uh, why do you need to have Canadian ownership of some of these some of these things? Is that the the only way in which we can ensure that uh, the public policy goals of of open access or whatever whatever else we require of them uh, be met? Uh, there are things like regulation. Uh, there are things like the Investment Canada Act that can work perfectly well in making sure that uh, these uh, you know, these kinds of very important industries. Don't, up in, don't end up in the hands of organizations that are going to work against Canadian interests. Uh, so foreign ownership rules don't really make a lot of sense um, in terms of the, uh, the the lowest cost way of reaching, reaching that policy goal.
2: This productivity problem has been with us since at least 1973 and endless things have been tried and a lot of good measures have been taken and I guess the best you could say is productivity would have slowed even more in the face of them. The only ones that really haven't been, been tried is on the labor market side. And we're getting a very clear picture of mismatches in the labor force and not much being done about that. And again, there's not one word in the mandate letter for the minister responsible about that doing. if we look at the three surveys that are done recently from the Business Council of Canada, what they're looking for in recruits. I can tell you from somebody teaching at university, that is not what we're teaching. That's not what we're producing from the university. So someone might want to take a look at that. The other example, of as much as a quarter of all Canada's labour force in the next 20 years could come from the Indigenous population in Canada. There's such a large young cohort that if their labour force participation were to equal that for non-Indigenous people, that would account for a quarter of the workforce. And that kind of commitment is not in that minister's letter. And in fact, coming back to this point about them not being ambitious, In the speech from the throne in 2015, it made it very clear that the government was committed to closing the standard of living gaps between Indigenous and non-Indigenous populations. For some reason, that does not appear in the mandate letters. It's basically, as is most of them, try a little bit harder, try a little bit more here, but it never states any bold type of objectives that one could
0: try to achieve and be held accountable for. What you actually do right when it comes to uh, discussing that particular issue in that community, that we need to work to fundamentally alter the relationship between the Crown and Indigenous peoples in the first place.
2: And, that, and that's where, I, when I have a difficulty, at least the mandate letter recognizes that there needs to be an encouragement to build the capacity so Indigenous people can deliver their own services. But where we're going to run into problems is that have to be quite specific to particular communities. There'll have to be experimentation. And that runs against everything in the grain of governments, particularly when it comes to Auditor Generals and Office of uh, Controller Generals and the like, because let's face it, when you have experimentations, they don't all work. And as soon as something doesn't work, there's gonna be a tendency to try to shut it down. And again, I think that's something that could have been said in the mandate letter. You need to find that kind of balance. You have to have an accountability. You don't wanna be throwing away taxpayers' money. But you need to encourage that kind of experimentation and the increase in the responsibility for delivering their own services. It's, it's a delicate balance act, and that just flew right over the head of, uh, I get, deliberately or, I, or not deliberately, I don't know, but that's just right over the head and right over the
0: depth of the mandate letter. Well, you had called for a new fiscal relationship with Indigenous peoples and supporting Northern communities who are dealing with climate uh, adaption challenges. I can imagine that there are many opportunities to experiment in that department as well with building these new relationships.
2: One of the many, many problems is uh, indigenous communities are dependent upon annual grants. It's fairly typical in the year, they will find out September, October, sometimes even November, how much money they're gonna get to the year. I actually, I changed this provision when I was in government way back in the 1990s. For most programs, you can carry forward up to 10% of your budget if it's not spent by March 31st. That was to target this so-called March Madness where people literally wasted the money in the last couple of years, but that doesn't even apply to most of the Indigenous programs. So they find out halfway through the year how much money they're going to get, and they have to spend it all by March 34th or it's all lost. And you've mentioned right now, a lot of the communities are trying to develop strategies to save in many cases, revitalize their languages. This is not a short-term project. This is something you have to document the language. You have to train people in the language. You have to create curriculum in schools. You have to find teachers, teach the trainer. This is five, 10, 15, 20 year projects. And how in the world can you do that when you get your funding with about two months notice and you all have to spend it all in four months. So there's a move towards 10-year grants and that is mentioned in the mandate letter, but I think we should probably go further and the transfer should be much like a statutory program, like the major transfers to the provinces. So I think that's something that the
0: minister should be working on, but again, is not directed to do so. Well, Ben, didn't you have a similar recommendation uh, as far as reducing grants to lower tier governments, basically to prevent a budget-flush scenario that would lead to spending on low-value projects because the municipality simply didn't want to risk losing the money in the
1: first place. Precisely. Uh, Grants to lower-tier governments, whether it's a province or in particular a city, uh, have a number of uh, potential uh, unintended consequences. Uh, When it comes to uh especially conditional grants where the federal government uh, uh, says thou shalt spend this on uh green infrastructure all of a sudden uh this, this, the city has to potentially reallocate money from infrastructure projects that it really really wants uh you know that might necessarily might not necessarily be green infrastructure and put it into things that may be lower priority uh requirements for it uh in, in this green fund and on top of that when these kinds of projects go wrong you know, a, heavy, a heavy a system of, of very rich grants creates a lot of problems for accountability. Taxpayers don't know the difference between uh, the federal government, uh, the provincial government, the lower tier government, and uh, in, in terms of who to hold people, who, who to hold accountable at the, at the ballot box next time around when a project go, goes awry, when all the different hands are, uh, all different levels of government have their hands in a project with, uh, with these kinds of grants. It makes much more sense unless there are very clear spillovers, uh, such as, inter- you know, inter infrastructure, international infrastructure, uh, for the lowest uh, possible tier of government uh, to finance infrastructure uh, almost entirely.
0: So the idea here would be that you would limit grants for infrastructure to basically two criteria. First of all, it has to work for more than just one jurisdiction. And two, it has to benefit either the entire country or at least across provinces.
1: Yeah, or there has to be some sort of spillover effect uh, such as higher income that leads to uh, higher income taxes that therefore the federal government sees a benefit that the other the lower level of government wouldn't otherwise get, but it has to be fundamentally based on, uh, or should be based on some kind of economic principle that, that justifies uh, a, a granting grant structure rather than le- le- letting the level of government or even better the, uh, private, the private sector uh, invest uh, based on what the local community actually wants
0: public-private partnerships. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
2: I've seen that numerous times, whether it's at the city, the provincial, or the federal level, when they get all keen on the infrastructure, it always funds whatever is ready to go the soonest. And that's almost never what you really want in the longer run.
1: Yeah. Another good example of this that you see in the infrastructure uh, letter, and this comes from the platform. So, you know, this, this is, you know, to be fair. Uh, the idea that oh uh, we're going to build a Newfoundland Labrador uh, uh, link oh and we're also going to build uh, uh, via high-speed rail but let's sit back and ask ourselves all right have we done a cost-benefit analysis of these things uh, once the federal government starts saying we're going to we're going to uh, you know, pick these individual projects uh, the or, or any government before before cost-benefit analysis has been done. Uh, this is a, a good way to, to waste a lot of money. So I, that's the sort of thing I'm I'm going to uh, keep my eye on. You're also trying to ensure that in
0: 2020 that the federal government uh, is, I was going to say, uh, wasting less money. Of course, we wouldn't want them to waste any money, but we know that there are opportunities to make change. And you're targeting savings of 15% from procurement. How would you go about cutting 15% out of the cost of procurement?
1: So some good examples. Uh, you're, you're seeing this uh, as a big as a big push in Ontario, centralizing procurement, uh, especially in healthcare. Uh, you know, doctors, for example, uh, you know, at every individual hospital might have their own particular kind of glove that they want. And if they're all off ordering their own kinds of gloves uh, at uh, retail costs, that's going to cost a lot more. There are lots of opportunities for um, the government, especially the Treasury Board, which runs things centrally. Uh, to when there are common needs and assess common needs for infrastructure, uh, create a common procurement system. Sounds like a tough road to hoe, Don.
2: Yeah, maybe we want to turn just for a second to another letter, which I find is the most fascinating of all of them, and that is to the Minister of Health Canada. Uh, not just the letter itself, but I'm really quite shocked at the media reaction to it. So the media's take when they looked at the mandate letters, probably the most common comment was Man, are they ever prepared to continue to do battle with the provinces on the environmental front? And no one seemed to pay attention to the Health Canada letter. So basically the Health Canada letter written to a federal minister is written as though the federal minister runs healthcare in Canada. So the very first line is ensure every Canadian has a family physician and access to a healthcare team. And you're probably thinking, oh, isn't that the provincial responsibility? Uh, And a whole bunch of other things that lays down that this minister is supposed to accomplish as a federal minister who basically most role in health other other than veterans and and indigenous health on reserve is basically presiding over a transfer to the provinces. And only later does it say to do all this negotiation with the provinces. Well, of course, then we've already heard the reaction of the provinces. Uh, You're paying a quarter of care. Who are you to tell us how to run it? So it just struck me that when you're going to dig in that far to the provincial jurisdiction, you may as well go a bit further, a lot further, in fact, and get something worthwhile out of it and engineer what we should have done right from the beginning as operate a system of health rather than a system of health One that's oriented towards keeping and producing people healthy as opposed to intervening once something's already gone wrong. But that's a fundamental change in virtually everything at healthcare, And of course, the first reaction will be that's not the federal jurisdiction on my response to that. Well, nothing in the almost nothing in the letter to the health minister at the federal level is in the federal jurisdiction. It all implies that you'll somehow successfully work with the provinces. And of course, having the minister of finance just releases fiscal update in which the deficit's already way above what they said before. I don't think anything will be managed with the current restriction they have on the growth rate of the Canada health transfer. So health is going to be a very divisive file, I think. And so my reaction, well, if it's going to be divisive, let's at least make sure we get something worthwhile out of it rather than just some marginal improvements.
0: And among those improvements that you would like to see uh, is, includes making systemic changes to reduce the health inequities between Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous Canadians. How do we go about that, though?
2: Well, almost every study that's been done in this area determines that about 70% of health comes are determined by social economic conditions. And that's targeted in certain areas. Or the number one is an in indigenous population where the vulnerability from social economics spills into the health and that spills across the generation. Recent immigrants is another. And again, you could say neither one of those is explicitly in the mandate of the health minister, but wearing that health lens, it could certainly coordinate the activity of others. We have a patchwork approach to public health promotion, a little emphasis on it at the federal level. If you take a, a province like Ontario, it's virtually divorced from the healthcare side, uh, has different accountability relationships and doesn't really do all that much. So you could integrate that much more. Uh, if you look at the compensation for a physician, it is based on interventions, doing something. You can't actually bill for helping somebody go to a high lifestyle in most cases that would be lost time in terms of a compensation. So you're compensated for the, the wrong ways uh, and not given a compensation for the type of
0: activities that would make more sense. Having said that, um, you're looking for major changes to the way we essentially do collective bargaining in this country. I, I can imagine that's quite a touchstone I- issue and not something that can easily be accomplished.
1: You know, for sure. And uh, this goes back to what the mandate letters that, that we did uh, layout, which is these are things that uh, we, we our research at the City House Institute suggests that they do. Uh, you know they'll pick, they'll pick some things up and 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 pick, uh, won't pick up other things. But this actually I think goes to I mean, what I find most interesting about the mandate letters is where they specifically differ from the platform. You know, that was the the whole idea is that uh, there there's a platform, but then there's the actual making things happen. And when it comes to some differences uh, between the platform and the mandate letters, some of the most interesting things that come out—there uh, you know, are a whole bunch. Uh, one is on, on um, in, in innovation minister's uh, letter. When it comes to telecoms, there's interesting stuff on in health on the insertion of dental care, finance on things like um, uh, more uh, considering more changes to the stress test and f- the fossil fuels. Uh, study on fossil fuel subsidies. So there's a lot to unpack. sort of looking at those differences between what was in the platform and what uh what's in that in in that in these mandate letters
2: but michael coming back to how do you make fundamental change of course you're never making it in a vacuum and the, the context changes as well so the context for healthcare has completely changed when we developed what we have right now in the 1960s canada was a very young population and it was acute care People, unfortunately, broke a hand or a wrist or, or a leg, and that's what you treated. Now, it's largely chronic care, and it's multiple morbidities, and it's a coordination of a very different type of nature. And, of course, we see the high rates of diabetes uh, and the, and these type of diseases that we didn't have. It calls for a very different healthcare system. I always... Think it's an interesting exercise just to pretend for a moment that you didn't have anything in front of you. What would you build? I don't think anybody would disagree that we would build something completely different than we've got. How do you recognize that and the shift towards it? But again, context changes. So we have as in many, many different sectors of Canada, we have a unique demographic in the medical field where we have a lot of doctors who are retiring or about to retire and there'll be a wave of younger people. And the younger people do not want to work under the same conditions the older ones do. They predominantly want to work in groups and clinics rather than individual practice. They would much more on balance, prefer to be an employee type of relationship with a salary and benefits, maternity benefits, pension benefits and the like, than that bothering setting up all the business administration and taking all the time to do that. And I think in that kind of environment, you could approach things like probably the best thing that could be done was actually put into place scope of practice. There's you know, nurses make the claim they can do 70% of what physicians now do. Don't know if that's exactly the right number. It's a very large number, but that can go right down the chain. But if people can have interesting work that they've been trained for, maybe they'll let go of some of these other things and work that all out. And, of course, like everybody else, I'm sure all of us are the same way. Once you've done something for a long time, you don't want to give it up. But as a new generation comes along, I think they'll be much
1: more open to that type of idea. And yet again, provincial jurisdiction.
0: Right. Ben, you touched on telecommunications. Something particularly of interest to me in 2020 is 5G wireless isn't exactly going to hit the world by storm in the year, but it's going to be something that's coming, and we're going to get more and more insight into what that means for us. You're calling on the government to clarify directions for the CRTC when it comes to the promotion of competition. There has been an attempt in the past to try to level that playing field.
1: Yeah, so this is as you get uh, into the nerdy details of the mandate letters where things get really interesting. Uh, so the platform commitment uh, and the mandate letters repeat the promise to reduce cellular phone bills uh, by 25% but where the mandate letter gets more specific is where it it says uh, to the minister you will work with telecom companies and expand mobile virtual network operators, uh, MVNOs in the market. If within two years this price target is not achieved you could expand MVNO qualifying rules and the Canadian or the CRTC mandate on affordable pricing. That's a That last bit is a big additional change. And if you go back to sort of uh, what's been happening over the last couple of weeks, uh, you go back to uh, the Competition Bureau, uh, which I should mention, is only mentioned once in almost a throwaway topic in there about um, uh, Northern policy, when the Competition Bureau has a potentially much bigger role uh, in in all this. The Competition Bureau on this exact topic said that, uh, sure, uh, MVNOs can uh, drive uh, lower prices, but they can also threaten uh, the, the demonstrated progress in enhancing competition in this industry to date. So, what's so? There's a lot to unpack in this one bullet uh, in in the in the mandate letter. That, uh, in particular, when it comes to the view of the Competition Bureau, I think we need to hear a lot more.
0: The idea that you can have these virtual cell phone companies piggybacking on the incumbents that provide services that maybe the incumbents don't, but at the same time also going head-to-head against those incumbents on something as simple as price.
1: Yeah, precisely, but the question becomes, are these MVNO operators the, 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 the most appropriate forum for this? Uh, there are other wireless disruptors that might, uh, you know, regional new regional entrants that might offer the most promising path forward according to the Competition Bureau. So there's a lot to unpack in, in this very specific uh, tar, uh, uh, point uh, in, in, this, in this letter, hey, you, something
0: that the Institute has, has written as well, certainly strikes close to me as, as a long time radio geek, Canadian content regulations Uh the Institute calls them ineffective uh, and suggests replacing them with direct subsidies. Are we talking about opening our wallets so that Celine Dion can make an extra buck?
1: Yeah. So the question becomes, what's the most efficient way to, to subsidize? Uh, canadian content if canadian content is a public good so is there actually you know, you go back to the question of you know what is the justification for a government uh, grant which is something that may, may might have been something you can put that would have been a good thing to put in kind of the preamble of all the letters is to, to step back and think why are we doing something uh if there's a broader public good that benefits all canadians then then taxpayers should pay for it uh when you when you put these kinds of costs uh, for uh, paying for Celine Dion, uh, rather than through the, on the tax series on the the smaller and smaller uh, pool of people who are still paying a cable bill, or or paying for satellite, and these kinds of costs aren't being passed on to Netflix subscribers uh, or people who are just getting Disney Plus or YouTube. It's it's creating a potentially unsustainable model for financing uh, Canadian content.
0: But, I don't understand how we can connect the dots here by suggesting that direct subsidies might be the solution while at the same time the institute's also calling for the elimination of ownership restrictions on communications companies and wireless spectrum back to the idea that we need to protect what is Canada.
1: so the so again, it goes back to the question of what's the most effective tool for the policy outcome that you want? Uh, you can still have foreign companies operating in Canada, but you know uh, and and then uh, subsidize those those operators. Uh, to provide more Canadian content. A great example, my favorite example, of this is Trailer Park Boys. Trailer Park Boys is a Canadian institution. It brings together Canadians of all of all kinds. Uh, and what's really interesting about it is it's on Netflix now. It's now an international phenomenon. And part of the success for that was uh, not necessarily through uh, content rules on the back end of making sure that, uh, you know, showcase whoever, whichever Canadian... Uh, operated around originally, but there are subsidies. Uh, There's a debate about the subsidies in Nova Scotia, but this is a more appropriate tool for uh, promoting Canadian content like Trailer Park Boys or other great Canadian content.
0: Well, as they say in the Trailer Park Boys, never trust a man with no shirt on. (laughs) Gentlemen, thank you for being fully clothed for this conversation. Okay, thank you. We'll put that on the file. That was Don Drummond, the Stoffing Dunning Fellow in Global Public Policy and the adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University and Ben Dacus, the C.D. Howe Institute's Director of Public Affairs. 2020 is shaping up to be a busy year at the C.D. Howe. Join us January 28th as the CEO of Sidewalk Labs joins us. Dan Doktoroff will be speaking at the Institute's Toronto Luncheon on Building the 21st Century City. On February 12th, the Roundtable Luncheon topic is Austerity and the Economy, Spending Cuts versus Tax Increases with Harvard University's Alberto Alicina. And March 12th, Rick Leary, the CEO of the Toronto Transit Commission, will be the Institute's guest, discussing how to build a transportation system for the modern age. I'm Michael Hainsworth. On behalf of all of us at the C.D. Howe, have a great 2020.
1: You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhowe.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.